again. Welcome to freedom. It is feeling more and more like freedom around here. It's uh, great every Sunday to walk in and look around and be able to go, ah, oh, they're back. It's like uh, every week there's another family or two that we haven't seen in a long time. Yeah, that is a great, great feeling. I confess I'm getting lousier at social distancing every Sunday when I come in here because every time I see a family that I haven't seen in a year, I just want to give you a big bear hug just to say, man, we've missed you and it's good to be back together. Well, congratulations, you survived another time change and you made it on time and now you get to make faces at everybody that walks in at 11 o'clock looking around trying to figure out what are they already doing here. No. It's good, good to see you today. To those of you who are joining us online, uh, thanks for doing that. We're always glad to have you tuned in that way. We appreciate you being a part of worship that way. We are uh, in a series right now that is uh, entitled uh, Choices That Define Us. And if you've got your outlines, we invite you to open up and uh, follow along with me there as we dive into that. I want to just uh, lay a little bit of a challenge before us before we get into the meat of the matter today. You know, there are some things that we talk about from the Scriptures that are designed to just encourage us, and there are some that will convict us and challenge us, and then there are some that just seem like a hill too high or too far, that it just it is so challenging. And I'm going to just warn you on the front end, today could have that feel to it. Of all the things that Jesus ever taught, this is some of the most challenging that we will face. And so I want to just encourage you. It's really tempting on the hard ones to pull back and go, eh, we'll, we'll file that away for another day. This is, this is important stuff, and if we're committed to following Christ, we can't dodge the hard stuff. And this is one of the key things that he talked about here that we're going to consider today. And by the way, I didn't already say this, but for those of you who maybe are new, let me offer this encouragement. I know everybody's tired of wearing the masks. I'm so tired of wearing the masks. We're going to do it for three more weeks. We'll ask you to wear them today through the service. But count them down with me because on Resurrection Sunday, when we get to the end of that service, we are going to take them off and celebrate together, and we are going to lay them down, hopefully, to never take them up again. So, uh, yes and amen. <laughs> Hang in there with us three more weeks. We are looking forward to that. Well, in June of uh, 2001, the eyes of the world were focused on a courtroom in Brussels, Belgium, as four people stood trial for their participation in thousands of murders that had taken place seven years before in the Rwandan genocide. The reason that these four people caught so much attention was really about two of them. Because of the four people standing trial in Belgium, two of them were Benedictine nuns. They stood in the courtroom in their, their full garb with their habits and all in place. They, they looked like angelic figures that shouldn't have been in a courtroom being charged with being complicit in helping thousands of people to be murdered. In case the 27 years that have passed maybe have clouded the story a bit for you, let me take a moment to just remind you of what still stands as one of the most appalling and horrifying things that's happened in modern history. And the span of roughly 100 days in the spring of 1994 in Rwanda, the Hutu-majority people turned on the minority group of Tutsis who were native to Rwanda, and they sought to, in a very brief span of time, completely exterminate them from that country. In the span of only 100 days, somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000 of the Tutsi people were raped and in that span of 100 days, roughly 600,000 were murdered, either shot or hacked to death with machetes. While the world watched, and few people did anything to, to stop this, it was a, just a huge tragedy. And while this was going on, you can imagine that it just became a, a nightmare of a humanitarian thing that that needed to take place in terms of offering some type of refuge for these people who were fleeing from the violence. Thousands of them fled to a convent there in Rwanda, a convent that was run by these two Benedictine nuns. Their names were um, 
sister Gertrude, who was the mother superior, she was 42 years old, and her, sist- her assistant, uh, sister Maria Casisto, who was 36 years old. And one would think that the people who fled to the convent, it was a natural instinctive thing for them, they would, would have thought that they would find a place of sanctuary there. Instead, what they found was the very opposite. As thousands packed the convent, Sister Gertrude, the Mother Superior, immediately went out and sought out the nearest military and militia leaders to bring them in to have them take care of these refugees who were filling their convent. And so they watched as people were drug out and shot and hacked to death. And though they stood and proclaimed their innocence in Belgium in 2001, what numerous witnesses verified is that they not only helped to facilitate these murders, but when they realized that there were several hundred refugees who were hiding in the garage complex there, they went and fetched all the gasoline that they had in cans and brought to the militia leaders so that they could set fire to the garage complex and burn it down around them. And they even testified how Sister Maria fetched all the dry leaves that she could to feed the fire to help burn these people to death. And as, as refugees would run out of the flames, they would immediately be hacked down with machetes. 7,000 people died that day in the convent in large part because these two nuns were not willing to render assistance. They were a part of the Hutu majority who wanted to see the Tutsis die. After a seven-week trial on June the 8th of 2001, a jury found them both guilty and they were sentenced to 12 years and 15 years apiece in prison. The question remains, how on earth can two people who weren't just human beings, these were committed followers of Christ, they had dedicated the remainder of their lives to serving Jesus and serving others in Jesus' name, and yet hatred of one group for another led them to a place that they were willing to help facilitate the murder of 7,000 people. There were press from around the world who were watching this, and a writer from the New York Times who was trying to describe what happened as, as the trial unfolded and the sentence was handed down at the conclusion of his article, he ended with these two sentences. Justice is built to establish the facts of evil, but it cannot explain them. That's the truth, isn't it? Justice can point out where evil has been done. But it sure can't explain this kind of evil. It is difficult for us to imagine, come to terms with, or try to explain this level of hate. We can hear a story like that and say, that is terrible, but I would never take part in anything like that. And I certainly can't imagine that any of us would take the steps that these women took or that this major part of a population took part in. But the scary thing is that we live in a world today where... There are a lot of groups who are at risk and who are being harmed and who are being hunted and who are being hurt and killed. And the question is, do we care enough to do anything about it? Are we willing to just stand by on the sidelines and sort of pick and choose who we're going to care about? In 1949, George Orwell wrote a book that today is recognized as one of the most significant literary works of the 20th century. It was entitled simply 1984. It was an attempt to look ahead three and a half decades to imagine what my life might be like. Orwell described a society that was really a a dystopian existence where people lived in a fictional land of Oceania. And uh, there are a lot of different terms and phrases. If you've never read the book, there, there are a lot of phrases that we still use today that came from this book, things like Big Brothers watching, because the people who lived in Oceania, they lived under oppressive rule where there were mind police. There were people who were always monitoring everything that you did and seeking to control every part of your life. And one of the things that Orwell described in his book, that's what I want to focus on for a moment, is a thing that he called two-minute hate. And in two-minute hate, it happened every day that all the citizens of the entire land had together around giant video screens that were strategically placed throughout the the country. And everyone had to watch propaganda films that were 
all about the enemies of the people of Oceania. It would explain why these were our enemies and, and why they are these people should be hated and what we should do to seek to destroy them. And at the conclusion of the propaganda film, everyone was required to participate in two minutes of just screaming, full throat, all manner of, of anger, ugliness, foul language directed at their enemies. And this is how Orwell described that two-minute hate that would take place every day. He says, The horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obligated to act apart, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer, seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against one's will into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blow lamp. What Orwell goes on to describe in the book is how this totalitarian oppressive government used technology to train and brainwash the people, to teach them who they should hate and why they should hate them. And the thing that was so prophetic about the book 1984 was at such an early time, he's writing in 1949, he had a glimpse of an idea of what could be done with technology to program masses of people as to who they should hate and why they should hate them. In so many ways, he was spot on. We live in a time today where we don't have to gather around giant video screens that the government mandates that we look at. We all have our own screens. We brought them in our pockets and our purses, and we've got them around us all the time. We're looking at screens all the time, and these screens, through social media, through mainstream media, through a 24-hour-a-day media stream that's profit-driven, are constantly programming us as to who it is we should hate and why we should hate them. We live with a government system today where the main theme is about hating the other side, recognizing how the other side is the real enemy of you and of true Americans. And not just how they're an alternate view of things and an alternate way of doing things, that they are the hated enemy. You know, one of the things that we hear about a lot right now, we've heard so much about this in the last five years, is the real danger that we have today that social media might be used by some foreign power to impact the outcome in American election. It's a very real threat. It's a very real possibility. But can I just tell you this? I am far less concerned today with China or Russia interfering with an election through social media than I am about the harm that social media is doing to the hearts and minds of Americans who are being trained to hate people who were made in the image of God. Because that's not just a possible threat. That is a very imminent threat. That is taking place right now. You know, the thing that I found a little perplexing and curious in the last two elections was that there was so much attention given to what Russia or China might do in terms of who they want to see elected. And I found it a little bit interesting that one country supposedly wanted a Republican in the White House and the other one wanted a Democrat in the White House. And at the end of the day, the more I watched all of it, I thought, I don't really believe that they care so much which one winds up in the White House so long as half of America hates the other half of America. When all is said and done, regardless of who gets elected, if everybody that's a liberal hates and fears every conservative and vice versa, they succeeded. They won. Doesn't matter who got elected. If America is no longer one country where we love each other, then don't kid yourself. That's the goal. And here we sit today in 2021 where we have people actually discussing states seceding from the union because they cannot stand the thought of having to do life together with other Americans who have different ideas. We have been so impacted by a culture that is telling us to hate and distrust. 
Today what we're talking about is choosing love over hate. I really want to begin as we turn our attention to the scriptures, I want to begin with just a fundamental question, and that, that's just this. When you really get to the heart of the matter, what is it that ultimately identifies us as Christians? I'm not talking about what makes us Christians. We understand that. The answer to that is very simple and straightforward in the Scriptures. Faith. Faith is the doorway that takes you from being a non-Christian to being a Christian. It is personal trust in the personal God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. You choosing to trust in the crucified and risen Son of God, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for your sins. Faith in him makes you a Christian. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about once you have become a person of faith, what marks you as a Christian? What identifies you as a Christian to the world around you? Is it adherence to a particular set of theological beliefs? Well, at some level, that's a part of it. You can't just believe anything that you want to. You can't just say, this palm tree is my idea of God and I'm a Christian. No, that doesn't work. To be a Christian, you have to place your faith in the one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to believe the gospel message that the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, came to earth, lived as a human, died on a cross for our sins, and rose from the dead. There are certain things that if you don't believe, you aren't Christian. So there is a part of this that is about correct theological beliefs, but the world doesn't really easily recognize what you do or don't believe, not in any detail. So is the thing that marks you as a Christian your ethical behavior? Is it that you live by a particular moral code? Well, there, there certainly needs to be a layer of that in this equation because you don't get to just live any way that you want to. You would certainly agree that I don't get to go out and be the biggest dope-taking, pot-smoking, alcohol-drinking, womanizing, cheat and liar in Fairhope and say, but I'm the pastor of Freedom Church. I'm a Christian leader. I don't get to live any way that I want to and profess faith in Christ. Wouldn't you agree? So there is an element that does involve my behavior, but at the end of the day, there are non-Christian people who tell the truth and who are honest and, and compassionate. What is it that defines us as followers of Jesus? The answer in the scriptures is so simple and clear. The defining mark for Christians, the identifying mark, is always love above everything else. That we are to be the most loving and accepting people on the planet. When Jesus was asked the question by a religious leader, a teacher of the law, in Matthew 22, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses, you know Jesus' answer to this. If you've been in church, you, you know his answer. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. You know what he's going to say. The heart of everything is about love. It's about loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself. So then that automatically begs the follow-up question. Okay, if everything's about loving God and the way you express your love for God is the way that you love your neighbor, then who's the neighbor that I have to love? That's what Jesus got asked as a follow-up. And it is a great question because at the heart of the matter, we do want to know, who do I really have to love? Well, Jesus told a classic story to make the point of what it means to love your neighbor. It's one of the two or three most famous stories that Jesus ever told. You could tell the story back to me. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, we know the story, but I want to challenge you to hear it again as if you're hearing it for the first time, as if you were a Jewish listener. This is who Jesus is talking to, as Jewish people. He tells this little story about a man who's making the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a, it's a dangerous road. It's, it's even today. There's parts of that road. I've been down that road. I wouldn't want to be alone there even today. And he, he's attacked by bandits, and they beat him. I think they've beaten him to death. They strip him down. They leave him thinking thinking that he's dead. They take all of his goods and, and leave him there. And three different people pass by one at a time and witness this man lying there naked, bleeding, and unconscious. The first two who pass by are Jewish. They're Jewish men looking at a fellow Jew bleeding on the road. The first one's a Levite, so this is a very religious guy, and he completely ignores. He just passes on by. The second one 
is a Jewish priest. So he's not just a Jew and he's not just religious. He is a religious spiritual leader. He crosses over and stays as far away as he can and he gets away as quickly as he can. And then a third guy comes along. Now, Jesus could have told the story any way that he wants to. He's being so very thoughtful when he adds this stick of dynamite to the story. The third guy that comes along is a Samaritan. The Samaritans are absolutely despised. They are not Jewish. They don't believe right. They are not ethnically right. They are not of us. If you're a good Jewish person, you are supposed to hate Samaritans. And it's a two-way street. The Samaritans can't stand the Jews. The Jews despise the Samaritans to the extent that if you go from the northern part of Israel to southern Israel or vice versa, Samaria is in between. You just about can't get from one to the other without passing through this land unless you go way out of your way and curve around it. I mean, you would have to double the length of your trip. This is what Jews would typically do so they did not even have to pass through the territory of these filthy pagan Samaritans. And Jesus says, a Samaritan comes along. He sees this Jew who is bleeding on the road, and he immediately attends to his wounds. He does everything that he can for him. He puts him on his mount. He takes him to the nearest town. He gets him the attention that he needs. He pays for everything. He puts him up in a room, and when he has to leave to take care of business, says to the innkeeper, here's some money. If, if it costs more than this, when I come back through, I'll settle the bill. You take care of this guy. And then Jesus just stops the story abruptly. Now you tell me, who's the neighbor? You ask me who's the neighbor that I'm supposed to love. You tell me who's the neighbor in this story. I can tell you, Jewish jaws are on the ground at this point. They are appalled at this story. Jesus has told us a story that shows us both love and hate. And what Jesus is illustrating in this story is that the two Jews who did exactly what every good Jew would expect a good Jew to do, and that is you, you just boogie on down the road, you, you ignore this, you, you get to safety. The Samaritan comes along and does the unthinkable. He reaches out to a Jew. He provides for him. He sacrificially does what is necessary to meet his needs, which, by the way, is a picture of the new kind of love that Jesus defined with his ministry. It's interesting what all we do with the word love today. Some people are scared to death to use the word love. Some people feel like they've never been in love. There are a lot of people who are hung up on, I'm never going to say I love you until I have this feeling where I know that I'm in love. They get so tangled up about what love is or we'll throw love around that, you know, I love puppies and I love pizza and I love this and I love that. We, we just get so confused about this word. Jesus wasn't confused about the kind of love that he introduced when he talked about agape love. This is a kind of love that is all about a commitment to meet needs. It's a love that's about choice. It's a love that says, I see you. I see you at a point of need, and I am committed to doing whatever it takes, whatever it's going to cost me. I'm going to do what's necessary to meet your needs. And that's why Jesus' story is a picture of love. It is one person who's not going to get anything back, who's going to have to spend money and time and take risks to care for another. And Jesus is saying, that's what love looks like. And he's doing it for the very person that the world says he should hate. This is what loving your neighbor looks like from Jesus' perspective. But we live today in a culture and just a setting where it's so easy for hate to just seep into our lives, to seep into our hearts. Oh, it comes in a lot of different ways. If you were bullied in school growing up, so easy for that to damage our hearts and our minds in a way that hate, fear, and distrust become a major way of how we look at certain segments of the world. If somewhere along the way in life you loved somebody deeply, you gave them all of your heart, and they broke it, they were unfaithful to you, they left you, so easy for that to leave a fracture that hate works its way into hate and bitterness begin to poison us. someone from another ethnic group somewhere along the way hurt you, victimized you, it's so easy for that to become the crack that allows hate to come in so that now you judge everyone in that ethnic group by that one experience. 
a lot of different things that can do it to us. But we struggle immensely with the issue of hate. And Jesus steps in and says, if you're going to follow me, the defining mark is that love has to replace hate in your life. Well, Jesus radically redefined what it means to love your neighbor. It's interesting to hear that in perspective because the Jewish rabbis of the day, and for quite some time, you know, the, the idea of loving your neighbor wasn't new with Jesus. You get that, don't you? Jesus, in answering, he was asked a question that was about the law. It was a fair and good question. What he was saying is, hey, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. There's a lot of instruction in the Scriptures. Could you boil it down for us? And so Jesus didn't, like, make up something new. He pulled the two key teachings from the Old Testament. He said, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbors yourself. Those are the two things that really fit together, that sum it all up. So what he said wasn't a new idea. The rabbis had been teaching this for centuries. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Jesus was not the first one asked to clarify. So who is my neighbor? The teaching of the rabbis, you've got to love this. They had come to agreement on this. The answer to the question, who is the neighbor that I'm supposed to love, was you're supposed to love other Jews. That's who your neighbors are. It's other people who ethnically are the same as you. They have the same worldview that you do. They share in the same experience as you. You're supposed to love people who are like you. I like that instruction. That's a good one, isn't it? Some of you are going, did he really say that? Come on, just be real. That's a good one. I can do that one most of the time. Isn't it much easier to like people who are like you, who generally like you back? They think like you. They live like you. Their experience has been like you. They vote like you. Aren't those the fun people to love? Let's let them be our neighbors. The rabbi said, you're doing good if that's who you love. Those are your neighbors. Now, it's interesting to note historically that there are a few, not a lot, but there are a few religions in the world who have gone beyond what the Jewish rabbis taught. That they said, no, love is actually supposed to reach further than just loving and doing something for people who are like you. There are some religions who have actually gone so far as to teach that we should forgive our enemies. That this is an act of mercy and compassion that goes beyond those who are like us and that we're supposed to love. That we should even be forgiving of the very people that we don't like. That's a stretch. That's hard to do. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus and Jesus alone taught his, that his followers must love their enemies. Whoa! That is way out of bounds. That is way beyond just forgiving your enemies. Jesus said, the thing that's going to mark people who follow me is that they will actually love their enemies. What does that look like? Here are the words of Jesus in Luke 6, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? This is going to be a recurring theme now. Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. You get what he's saying here in the middle portion. The things for which we tend to want to pat ourselves on the back and say, look what I did. I was nice to this friend of mine. I did a favor for this friend of mine. I loan something to this friend of mine. Now, they better give it back. They better pay me back. But, but see what a good Christian I was. And Jesus is going, seriously? You think that marks you as a Christian? That you did something nice for someone who loves you? You loan something to someone that you love and they love you and you know they're going to pay you back? Don't you understand? Pagans do that. People out in the world do that. That doesn't mark you as a Christian. That marks you as a human. 
You love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He gets to the heart of the matter at the conclusion there when he's saying the reason that you're to love like this is because this is how the Father loved you. You see, you are the enemies of God. All of us were the enemies of God. We couldn't do anything to make ourselves more appealing and, and to look like we are the children of God or the friends of God. No, we were enemies of God and still He reached out and loved us when there was nothing lovable about us. Don't you, don't you thank God for that? Aren't you grateful today that God didn't wait until you cleaned up your act to love you? None of us would get there. I want to pause for just a moment and put what Jesus is saying in some kind of context because it's already tough enough just to read that. Wouldn't you agree? How many of you would agree that is one of the hardest teachings that Jesus ever said? Some of us are just shell-shocked going, I'm not raising my hand for anything after that. That's, that's brutal, isn't it? To imagine trying to do this, and yet this is the standard that Jesus lays out for us. Let's put it in context. For about five centuries prior to Jesus' coming, the Jewish people had had a rough, rough time. They had been an oppressed people for a long time. Lots of generations over five centuries had lived under just wicked, wicked leaders, rulers who just made any kind of normal life a challenge, if not impossible. But finally, that came to an end. Under Mattathias and his son, Judas the Hammer, they were able to um, throw off the shackles of pagan rule and, and the rebellion that they led in. They were able to uh, overthrow Antiochus and all the things that he had done to do away with temple worship. And he just defiled the temple. He did away with the, the law of Moses being the standard for the people of God and the, the priesthood. He had basically destroyed faith as the Jewish people had known it. But now, because of this Maccabean revolt, Israel was able to exist as an independent nation again. They were able to reinstate the priesthood and temple worship and following the law. And, and they finally were able to have a national identity and a faith that was true to God. And it was like finally after five centuries of oppression, everyone could just go, life is back. We've got our freedom back. We are a free people. We can live out our faith until the Romans came along. And they rolled through like a tank. And they overran Israel like they did countless other countries. And now when Jesus arrives on the scene, they are once again an oppressed people with virtually no freedoms. They are living under Roman occupation and Roman rule. And there were so many bad things that came with that. You have some idea of what life was like in that time, but it, you know, it's taxation without representation. There's, you know, you're told what you're going to pay in taxes, and you have no recourse in that. And there's all kinds of corruption. The, the military is everywhere, and the way that they're able to abuse the citizens is just really, we don't like to even think about the things that were going on. And the things that soldiers were allowed by law to do to the people in terms of demanding things from them or, you know, they're marching through and they're exhausted. And, I mean, they can just look at it and say, Todd, carry my gear for a mile. And you have no recourse, buddy. you got to do it. You may hate the Romans. doesn't matter. You do it or you're in deep trouble. This is the law of the day. So you can imagine how the Jewish people by this time... They're just sick at heart over what they're dealing with. They want their freedom back. And they are holding on to one set of promises, and it is the promise of the Messiah. Because the Scripture was clear that when the promised one, when the anointed one comes, he will, he will reign on the throne of his ancestor David, and he will be a ruler like David. They love the sound of that. Because nobody ruled like David. He was a warrior king. He got it done. He expanded the boundaries of Israel. They were independent. They were strong. He knew how to lead. He knew how to fight. 
And they could only imagine when the Messiah comes, David was just a foreshadowing of what the Messiah is going to do. And now Jesus arrives on the scene. And people are going, hmm, I wonder. He's a charismatic leader. People come flocking to him. When he talks, people listen. And oh, he's got power. Oh, does he have power. He has power to heal the sick. He can raise the dead. And man, he casts out demons like they're nothing. No one has power like this. Can you imagine what he's going to do to those Romans? This is going to be sweet. This is going to be so good. I hope he is the Messiah. He's going to put a hurting on these Romans like they never imagined. And we are finally going to be free. It's why the disciples and people kept asking, so when's it going to happen? When's the kingdom going to come? When are you going to establish the kingdom? Deal with these Romans, Jesus. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus says, here's my instruction for you. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to those who harm you. And when he says to you, carry my pack a mile, I want you to carry it two miles. And when he demands the coat from off of your back, I want you to offer him your shirt as well. And even though he is your hated enemy, and he asks for money from you, I want you to give it and expect nothing in return. I want you to show love to your enemies. Can you just imagine how that landed for them? You want us to do what? To who? Jesus is saying, this is what it means to follow me. Love your enemies. If I ask you today, what is the most popular verse? What is the favorite verse of Scripture for Christians across the land and probably around the globe? What would you say the answer to that is? It's universal, John 3.16. It may not be your favorite verse, but collectively you know John 3.16 is absolutely the most beloved verse in all the Bible. It is with good cause, such a powerful verse. But here's something I bet you didn't know. That in the first three centuries of the church, the most popular verse of the Bible was not John 3.16. Based on all of the writings that we have from the first three centuries of the church, there is another verse that stands out that was the John 3.16 of that era. And you may say, well, why are we so interested in the first three centuries of the church? Well, I'll tell you why I am. Because in the earliest years of the church is when the DNA was, in a sense, the purest because in the earliest days, these people lived with the apostles. They, they got to spend time with the people who actually spent time with Jesus or, or their parents did or a couple of generations ahead of them did. I mean, these are the people who really got the ethos of what it was to be a follower of Jesus. And for those people, the John 3.16 for them, the, the verse that we find more frequently, far more than any other verse that's ever written and talked about, is Luke 627 we just read it love your enemies and do good to those who harm you now that should cause us to stop and think as these early Christians are trying to come to terms with what it means to be truly Christian for them enemy love was the defining mark can we just be really honest it doesn't even make sense to us, does it? If we're honest, the idea of loving our enemies, doesn't it bring to mind a whole list of questions? Like, how far am I supposed to go with that? If you really try and do this, you're going to get taken advantage of. Uh, clearly, if you do what Jesus said, you absolutely are. Wouldn't you consider it being taken advantage of when somebody says, Hey, man, carry my load, and now you've got to carry it twice as far as what they told you? They want to take something from you, and now you've got to give them twice as much as what they're trying to take from you. They want money from you, and you're supposed to give it, and you're not going to get anything back. I would say that's pretty much taken advantage of. We have all kinds of questions about this. This can't possibly really be what Jesus means. I mean, isn't there a part of you, the rational part, that goes, I mean, there has to be something else after this that Jesus says, yeah, but after a certain point, we get to draw a line and say, enough's enough. Now it's time to go back and... Make them pay. Now it's time to hurt them because they hurt us. It's the Medea gospel, right? You've got to pay them back. You've got you to get your own pound of flesh out of the deal. 
And yet Jesus never said that. This version can't work, can it? Those first three centuries of the church, when they're holding this up as the standard, enemy love is the standard of those who truly follow Christ, they're being martyred by the thousands at the hands of the Roman Empire. They're being dipped in in oil and set on fire to, to on posts to light the streets. They're being sawed in half. They're being used for sport to be killed by animals while the crowds watch and cheer. Unspeakable things are being done and they are continuing to hold up as the standard. We will love our enemies because Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. We look at that and go, that doesn't work. Yes, it does. Because the mighty Roman Empire was loved to its knees. The Roman Empire does not exist today. The church marches forward as the most powerful force on planet Earth today. Jesus' message of love your enemies was so contagious. It was so overpowering that even though our minds seem to to not even be able to grasp that, how can love for your enemies possibly win? It's the only thing that wins. You see, for centuries, Christians decided that Muslims were the, the threat. So we had the Crusades. We're going to win the world by killing the Muslims. That didn't work out so well, in case you haven't read your history books lately. We still today think it's by might that we're going to put down our enemies and justice and ultimately a Christian ideal is going to win out. No, it's not. It's not. It is the love of God that prevails. It is compassion that prevails, and that does not make sense to us. In a world where there is so much violence and injustice, we think that it's only by power and might that we're going to be able to make it better. And Jesus has an alternative plan. And I'm admitting to you, I'm just admitting as a red-blooded American man, there's a part of this message that is so hard for me. I mean, here we are deeply invested in Nigeria. We love our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. We're starting to put together a plan for us to travel over this year to Nigeria. So looking forward to it. And yet there is a part of my heart that is troubled to know that Nigeria is the one point on the planet that Islam has targeted above every other place right now. They want Nigeria more than any other country. It's the most populous country in all of Africa, nearly double any other country on the the whole continent. And they have decided we must take Nigeria. Things are really heating up there. I mean, Boko Haram, it's just... Time after time, we're hearing news stories of they've abducted another 300 schoolgirls and and have carried them away. I mean, it is a dangerous place. And there's a part of me that hears that and thinks, we need to go in with force. We need to use force to make this right. And yet, at the end of the day, and listen, I'm not making a political statement here. I understand there are situations, decisions have to be made and things have to be done. I'm talking to the church. We don't lead an army with tanks and M16s. The church is the only hope for the world. The church is the only hope for Nigeria, is the only hope for America. And the only message that will prevail is we love you and we are here to serve you. Not just those of you who like us, but those of you who hate us. Because our master, our Lord, King, and General... That was his battle cry. We love our enemies. I knew that wasn't going to get amens. I get it. It's, it's hard to preach. It's hard to hear. And yet this is the call for followers of Jesus. I don't know who said it, but it's so true. The one who loves his enemies can no longer have any enemies. He's only left with neighbors. Because we're called to love them all. I wonder what would happen today. If we made this our operating principle in every situation that we love our enemies, what would happen if we show real love to the groups that we most dislike or ultimately secretly hate? Can I just, as a practical exercise, throw out to you a list of 
six categories of people for us to think through and ask the question. Be really honest. Do I seek to actively love these people? Remember now, love is not a warm feeling, not the kind of love we're talking about. The, the brotherly love kind of feeling, we all know what that is. Jesus came in, and he's got a whole other standard. We're talking agape love. This is a commitment to meet needs. Consider six types of neighbors that we need to be mindful to love today. First of all, people of other races. How many of you know that racism is still alive and well today? If not, I hope you enjoyed that nap through 2020, because if you were conscious in 2020, you are well aware of just how much racism is alive and well. And for all that we want to say, we're so advanced. The truth of the matter is, in 2021, white people fear black people, black people fear white people, and both look suspiciously at Hispanics, Latinos, and Asians. Every one of those groups, in large part, fears, if not dislikes, if not hates, the other groups in massive numbers. Because we've been given all kinds of programming that would suggest if you're from this group, you're not safe with this group. We are called to love people who do not look like us. We need to be intentional to work even harder to express love and commitment to people who do not share our skin color. People of other religious faiths. I just referenced the biggest one that's a challenge for us. I mean, it, it can be a challenge to live out this kind of love with people of any other faith, but particularly Islam. I mean, there are all kinds of tangible reasons why we have feared Islam. I mean, again, let's just be real. When you hear about a terrorist incident, aren't you expecting the picture that comes up on the screen of the suspect for their skin color to look a certain way? Aren't you expecting them to be wearing certain garb on them that screams Muslim? Of course you are. You're just like me. We, we fully expect that. And we translate that into believing that everyone who's Muslim wants to blow up the world. And can I just clear up a, a, a piece of that for us? The Quran does teach a forceful, violent expression of, of the Muslim faith toward anybody who won't convert. It's a very peculiar thing. They wait until the final page of the whole book, literally. It, it doesn't exist in the Quran until you get to the last page. It is like some strange addendum of violence, extremism added at the end. It's there, and it certainly has colored how a large number of people have lived out their faith. The truth of the matter is, most Muslim people don't live their lives by the last page of the Quran. They just don't. They're just trying to figure out how to live life and how to live out their faith. It is not a faith that will lead them to God. It is not a faith that will ultimately satisfy. It is tragic. But at the end of the day, they are people who need to hear the good news of Jesus, who need to experience the love of Christ. And by the way, even the militant ones need that. They are our enemies that we are called to love. It is challenging to figure out how to love people who want to kill you. This is the challenge of Christianity. We don't just get to love people who like us. A third group to consider are foreigners, foreigners and illegal immigrants. I know we start squirming the moment we even say the words because this has become such a political issue. But think back to the example that I gave earlier of 1984, the book how we've been programmed about who we're supposed to hate. Friends, we have been programmed to hate and reject immigrants in this country. They're a threat to our way of life. They're taking American jobs. They're blah, 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 blah. You have been programmed, I have been programmed to hate a segment of people. Yeah, but they're illegal. So we should do our part to run them out. Have you not figured out we have a pedigree of illegal occupation of a country? I mean, you do get that. Looking around the room, I see a lot of people of European descent, starting with moi. Yeah, I'm pretty European honky up here. I, I, I am. And the last time, I, I mean, you're not going to look at me and say, yeah, he's probably an Indian at heart. I see a lot of Native American. No, this is Wonder Bread talking to you here. My folks have not forever lived on this continent. 
My ancestors came from places like Wales, Scotland, England, and other parts of Europe. They came over to a country that they did not purchase, that they were not born in. They came here and, in a sense, immorally and illegally took what wasn't theirs. And if I'm honest, there's a part of me that goes, I'm so glad they did. Because it means I got to be born here and live freely. But somehow we get to skip all of that and just translate to, but here we are now. We are the legal occupants of this country. And if people come here from somewhere else, we need to run them out with no regard for what has happened to them. I'm not making any kind of statement about immigration policy. That is a complex issue, and I don't have the answers. And I know the answer isn't to fling open the doors and let everybody in. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is we are Christians in a land where there are millions of people who weren't born here. And a Christian response is not to say, y'all get lost and get out of our country. Most of us got here as a result of somebody coming here who didn't originally belong here. We have a long history of just being here, not because it was our land. We inherited something that we didn't earn. So we should, at the very least, show some compassion to people who maybe fled difficult circumstances to be here. I don't care what your politics is on that. Even if you're convinced that's the enemy, the call of Jesus is to love your enemies. The fourth one is a challenge for us, loving those from the LGBTQ community. I don't know of any two groups, groups in our culture today that, that feel more distrust toward each other right now than the church and the LGBTQ community. I mean, do you? The church is afraid of them and they're afraid of us. And probably with good cause. There's such a sense of what they are going to do to us in both directions. And all I'm trying to say is you don't have to agree with their ideals to show them compassion. You don't have to agree with their choices to treat them as people made in the image of God, loved by Jesus. Are we loving them as a community of people with love being a commitment to reach out and meet needs? The fifth group is people with differing political views from my own. I can't think of any single area where we're being programmed more to hate than around the concept of politics. And by the way, I do think that there are foreign powers who are actually working hard to do this. They want to make sure that you hate people who have a differing political view from you. Can you listen to the mainstream media now and not feel like you're being trained as to why? I mean, if you are... If you're a conservative, you have been trained to hate Nancy Pelosi and a whole list of, of other Democratic leaders. If you're a Democrat, you have been trained to despise Donald Trump and other leaders. And this is just the way it works. Not just to vote against and disagree with. You're supposed to despise these people. Are we intentional to love the other side? And finally, the last group of neighbors we need to be mindful of loving is people who have just hurt us personally. We've all been hurt by folks. And the biggest single challenge is to love the people who have hurt us. If you're struggling with hate, it is safe to say that you have likely been hurt very deeply somewhere along the way. And that spills over in time as distrust, bitterness, and hate. And the key to overcoming hate is to practice forgiveness over and over and over. If you want to get past hate... You must be willing to forgive. I can't think of many people in modern times who have lived out this reality better than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That man was the embodiment of, of just the object of so much hate. Racial, social tension just focused on him. And he was committed to being a follower of Christ and he was committed to the principle of enemy love, that you love your enemies. One of the times when this got put to the test so severely was when he was speaking to a crowd in Birmingham, Alabama. And in the middle of what he was saying, a white man, 200 pounds, came charging up out of the crowd and physically attacked Dr. King as he's speaking. I mean, he just began to pummel Dr. King. He was determined to just beat him to a pulp right there while everyone watched. Well, you can imagine what happens in a moment like that. 
that there are aides and people who come charging in in a moment of violence, and they're going to violently take this guy down. Dr. King, recognizing what was about to take place, rather than, I mean, think about the things that he could have done that he didn't do. He didn't immediately retreat to a back room and pray for the man. He didn't step away and wait for the police to take charge and press charges and then go visit him in jail. What he did do was he wrapped the man up in a big bear hug and would not let go because he knew that the guys who were charging in to take him down were going to do so violently. And he went from being the victim who is being beaten bloody to suddenly being the protector who just did everything he could to just wrap this man up and just hold him in an embrace. And as this struggle just continues and Dr. King is just holding on and won't let go, the crowd that's witnessing all this initially in shock, as moments pass by, they, they begin to sing. They begin to sing the, the song that was the theme of the movement, the song of justice and love. The man who attacked Dr. King that day was Roy James, and he was a 24-year-old New Yorker who was a member of the American Nazi Party. He had come that day to do real harm, but as he stood there on that stage being protected by the bear hug of Dr. King, he went from rage to sobbing on Dr. King's shoulder. After some moments had passed and an exchange had taken place, Dr. King introduced Roy James to that crowd as though he were an honored guest. And in that moment of time, people got to see in prophetic fashion How love overcomes hate. Hate arrived in the flesh on that stage saying, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to shut you up. And there's only one response that would change a heart in a moment like that. And that was a response of love and embrace. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Do not be bitter or angry or mad. Be kind and loving to each other and forgive each other just as God forgave you in Christ. How far do we have to go with that? That's what Peter asked Jesus. I mean, Peter and the disciples are wrestling with the same stuff we're wrestling with. And Peter just finally said to Jesus one day, so how many times have I got to do this? I mean, are you going to make me do it seven times? Do you remember Jesus' answer to that? No, you get to do it. 77 times. The language is a little confusing there. We're not sure if he said 77 or if he said 70 times 7. Either way, you get the point. He's just saying, you just keep forgiving and keep loving and keep forgiving and keep loving and quit keeping score. How far are we supposed to take that? I'll conclude with this. I know you remember in 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina, the awful events that took place at Emanuel AME Church in their uh, evening prayer service, a little prayer gathering, a young man, a 21-year-old by the name of Dylan Roof, came into this meeting of African-American Christians and took part in the prayer meeting for a time and then toward the end of the meeting pulled out a handgun and opened fire and killed nine of the people there and wounded a tenth. When he was arrested, Roof made it clear that his goal in this was he was wanting to start a race war. That was He was hoping that there in Charleston would be something that would start a movement that would ultimately create a race war in America. Later in prison, he wrote these words, I'd like to make it crystal clear that I do not regret at all what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. That is a picture of pure hate. There is no repentance. There is nothing but hate. How do you respond to that kind of hate? Well, I want to read to you three of the responses in court of family members of the victims. Nadine Collier, whose mother Ethel Lawrence was murdered, said this. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I'll never ever hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. The sister of another victim, DePayne Middleton Doctor, said this. 
One thing that DePayne always enjoined into our family is she taught that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. Finally, Alana Simmons, another victim's family member, simply said this, Hate won't win. Ultimately, that's the bottom line that Jesus understood and taught. Hate will do its best to rule the day. But hate won't win because love always overcomes hate. When we are treated unfairly and unkindly, and we will be, we will have enemies. We will have people who mistreat us. Jesus acknowledged that. We will want to respond in kind, but hate cannot be allowed to win because love overcomes hate. And friends, love is the mandate of Jesus. This is the great commandment. This is the great call of the followers of Jesus. We must find in tangible ways how to move beyond this programming of hate and distrust and decide, if you think differently from me, I'm going to try harder with you to find a point of connection. If you look different from me, I'm going to go out of my way to meet you, spend time with you. We're going to have to be intentional, and we're going to have to really lean into Jesus. Because can I tell you the obvious thing here? We cannot do what we're talking about today in our own strength. Would you agree with that? I mean, we are hopelessly lost to do this in our own power. We won't make it past 3 o'clock this afternoon living this out in our own strength. But the Spirit of Jesus, who loves everyone equally, wants to work powerfully through us, changing our prejudices and our, our hurts, our unforgiveness into love and compassion, real concern for people that we haven't cared about in the least. And I want to tell you, when that happens, power is unleashed. There is an anointing that begins to flow through us as we begin to love the people that we've refused to love in the past. And people begin to see Jesus. And the church begins to shine as the beacon of hope that she was designed to be. Oh, may Freedom Church be that kind of people where enemy love is the standard. If Jesus is our standard bearer and he could look at the people who wanted him dead and he loved them and said, Oh, Father, forgive them. Then we must follow that example. Would you join me as we turn to him? Oh, Jesus, you are good. You amaze us by your compassion, the depth of your love. You loved us when there was nothing lovable about us, and we thank you. We want to open ourselves up to your love. We just want to say again, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring about us. Thanks for being patient with us. It is so hard to think through how we're going to live this out in our lives, Jesus. We need your help. We need your grace. God, you know the hurt that we're carrying. You know the, the things that we just don't even know how to let go of and forgive. I pray that there will just be an outpouring of grace today on us. That we would love because you've loved us. That we would forgive because you've forgiven us. I just want to invite you right now, just in the privacy of your heart, if the Holy Spirit's put his finger on some person in your life, maybe it's some group of people that you realize... Boy, I have been carrying some hate, some unforgiveness, some wrong feelings toward. Don't rationalize it or wrestle with it. Would you just confess it right now to God? Would you ask Him to forgive you? Would you ask Him to just now begin to pour in love for, for that person or those people that you couldn't muster but that He can give? Jesus, begin a work of healing in us, healing from past hurts. Free us to forgive and to love and receive love. Do a fresh work among us, please. We pray with grateful hearts, Jesus, in your name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, 
if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.